Through the course of 2018, I've heard many of the members of our church discuss their struggle with their personal reading of the Word of God. Struggling for all different types of reasons, some not being able to find the time to do so, to others who have just uh, feel that the Word of God is just something that they personally cannot understand or grasp on their own in their own personal reading, or that the Word of God doesn't seem to be having the effect in their life that it may have at one time previously. At the end of every year, I like to address maybe an issue that has come up or uh, answer a question that I've been asked by several within the congregation. And this morning, I'd like to address the Word for a new year. Now, we are going to be continuing through our study of the Gospel of Luke after we take a couple of weeks to address this issue, maybe just this week, I don't know. Uh, we're going to be going verse by verse through the entire book of Luke, so read ahead. And uh, let's tackle this thing in a series we've called, we're, I'm entitling, That You May Be Certain. And I believe Luke's gospel is unique in the manner in which he presents things, and we'll look at that together uh, it's one of the Gospels I've never taught on Sunday mornings, so I'm looking forward to doing it um, together with you. But I think we need to address the issue that maybe so many of you are struggling with personally. So let me ask. Now, please, you don't have to shout it out, raise your hand, or uh, confess openly. How are you doing in your personal reading of the Bible? Are you spending time with the Bible each and every day in a time called devotions? I think a devotional life is key to a healthy Christian life. By spending time in prayer and the Word each and every day, you can often discover the health of the Christian by the condition of their Bible. If their Bible is all defiled by being marked up, if it uh, is falling apart, the cover is falling apart, uh, you probably can look at that person and say, oh, they're doing pretty well with the Lord. If someone has a Bible that creaks when it opens, that might not be the case in their personal life, unless they just got it for Christmas and this is their second or third Bible that they're on. Or like me, if you're aging and you're still looking for font something 42 or better uh, because of your eyesight diminishing. Uh, but reading the Word of God for a believer is so important. Now, here comes the problem. What is your expectation when you read the Bible? If it is simply an intellectual pursuit you're going to be satisfied to a certain degree, but not fully. If it is to pragmatically solve your personal problems one right after another, you may be more frustrated than others. If it is to know the heart of God, you are going to have the greatest satisfaction of all. For the Bible is the manner in which God has de designed and delivered to reveal himself to you and I. And once we look at this book in that manner, then we can understand that it is the heart of God that he desires to know as we read and learn the Bible together. In knowing the heart of God, we begin to change ourselves as individuals who follow Christ. Because the Holy Spirit resides within us, allowing us to know Him thoroughly and intimately. Through the Word of God, we have the revelation concerning His character, His nature, His heart, His mind. And in the Word of God, we also fully understand who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. 
But if we put upon the Word of God a false expectation when we approach the Word of God, we are going to be very frustrated and discouraged in our personal Bible reading. The psalmist wrote, he stated in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The psalmist writes from an assumption that first and foremost, his reader would understand that the lamp in which he is referring to is a lamp that would be uh, used in an enclosed environment. The Hebrew word for lamp there is a simple dish that is formed and then there's a little spout that comes out and that spout that comes out is where a rope wick would be laid and that wick would be lit and the wick would then absorb the oil from the bowl portion of the lamp and burn itself off without consuming much of the wick at that moment and allow the lamp to shine for hours. But this personally, I'm sorry, this particular type of lamp was useless outside. The wind would blow it out or the oil would spill. It's not a lamp that they would use to govern themselves outside in the wild. It's something that they would use indoors. And therefore, it is stating that most likely it is the type of lamp that would be used in that culture when they lived within the side of a mountain. Now, many of the homes in the mountain areas of Israel were uh, actually built within the mountain area. They would resemble caves, but they would be um, caves that were sometimes modified or hewn, and, or they would be uh, caves that were just taken as is and made homes and so forth. And this would be the type of lamp that would be used within that cave. It is stating that the Word of God for this individual is the light of his personal life. The home indicates the individual centrality of the life of the individual. He's stating that I have adopted the Word of God to be the philosophy in which I have personally placed before myself to follow through the world in which I personally live. As a, as a result he states that there are two further assumptions that can be made. Number one, in the Hebrew language, it states that it is a light to my path. And in the Hebrew, it means that there's a light to my path. And that word, my path, together with the word path, indicates that there are many paths that one can travel, but the light, which is the word of God, is illuminating the one that I should travel. And it helps me discern from those that I should not. It is a lamp to my feet. It shows me where I am. It shows me what I am standing upon. Is it a firm foundation or is it faulty that will fall apart under the stress and the weight of the cares of this world? This individual, the psalmist has stated through this verse that I have chose the word of God to be the philosophy to guide me through this world. It is a lamp unto my feet, assuring me that I am on firm foundations, and it is a light unto my path, demonstrating that it is illuminating the manner and the way that I should go apart from the way I should not go. And as a result... He states that in his distress, as the psalmist goes on to write in Psalm 119, I will trust the Word of God. Every individual in this world is governed by a philosophy of thinking. Every individual is governed by a philosophy of thinking. That philosophy of thinking can be an orthodox 
uh, philosophy of thinking uh, that has been hewn and has been given to us through higher education and so forth, or it can be an eclectic mishmash of different ideas put together through life's own personal experience that is governing one's personal pursuit. The second outweighs the, the latter, or the, the first. And the reason I say this is because many individuals don't know how we operate as human beings. How many of you have a computer? How many of you have a smartphone? Okay. There are two major components to your smartphone. There's the software and there is the hardware. Neither can run without the other one. The hardware is only as effective and will only go where the software is telling it. The hardware apart from the software has no functionality whatsoever. That is the human being. The software is the philosophy in which we have adopted to guide our lives through the world in which we live. Some there also call this a worldview. And there are other, then the other portion of it is our body, our mind, our soul. That is the hardware that is being governed by the worldview, the philosophy in which we have adopted. Everybody has two components. And as a result, because of the manner in which philosophies are adopted today, everyone appears to be doing what's right in their own eyes, don't they? Everyone's going in their own personal direction. That is because philosophies are no longer governed in mass. They are uh, given individually by the personal experiences that one has. And therefore, those experiences make up the philosophy, make up the worldview that that individual then carries forward with them. Now, because my experiences are so different than yours, your philosophy is going to be different from mine. Do you see how I'm, what I'm saying here? And as a result, getting a consensus and getting a group of people to agree on any one particular issue is almost an impossibility today, isn't it? However, though, one of the, one of the huge... Uh, responsibilities of an individual philosophy is determining what is true from what is false. Now, if we all have a philosophy based upon our own personal experience, we can come to greatly differing truths concerning our perspective of life. Let me illustrate if I may. Say to me that you come up to me and you're saying, Pastor Eric, listen, I, I want to buy a reliable car. Okay. What would you recommend? Uh, well, a Corvette, you know. Uh, well, I, you know, a Corvette would be a little bit too much for me. Well, if you don't want it, I'll take it. Uh, I'm still going that route. So let me say, I, I, I say, well, no, you know, a, a, a Toyota is a very reliable, reliable car. And you come back to me and say, oh, you know what? I had a Toyota and that was the biggest piece of junk I ever had. Oh my goodness. It was falling apart constantly. And every time I drove it, every time I stopped for gas, I'd leave parts in the gas station because it was just falling apart everywhere I go. Those are the worst cars that have ever been made. Now I could show that person all the statistics showing how reliable a Toyota actually is. But their personal experience won't allow them to objectively look at the statistics and the data that proves their reliability compared to other vehicles of their kind. And as a result, they determine what I am showing them to be false when in actuality it is the truth. This is what's happening in our society today. It's not true because I haven't experienced it to be true. And once I've experienced it to be true, then I will agree that that's truth also. And this is where you get the whole issue of relativism and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, one truth being relative to another person and so forth. Uh, and, and as a result, you get this mishmash of ideas of what's truth and false. 
Now, you and I are in this world as believers in Jesus Christ, and we're impacted by everyone who's around us who thinks this way. We're impacted by it, if we like it or not. We have to interact and deal with people such as this. And because we are so surrounded by such a great number of people who hold such philosophies and what I would call, you know, um, uh, eclectic uh, reasoning and, and so forth, since we are surrounded by so many who think this way, guess what? We tend to think this way also. And one of the things that we have adopted as believers that I wish we could completely devoid ourselves from is this understanding that pragmatism is the formula in discovering what is truth. If we can abandon this faulty idea as believers in Jesus Christ, we would be so much better off. And that is what I had illustrated that a personal experience determines personal truth. If we can abandon that, if we can look past that and look at data and information objectively, then we would be in a much better situation in our approach to the Word of God. For example, if I'd say to you, that I believe God can perform miracles, what would you say? Yes or no? Would you agree with that or disagree with that? Okay. Have you ever experienced a personal miracle yourself? Oh, good. Because a lot of people haven't. And as a result, they will discount or discredit anyone who believes in a miracle and discredit the Bible for putting forth a miracle. Well, I've never been to a funeral and all of a sudden the corpse gets up and rises again. Do you know when I first became a pastor, I was so afraid that I was going to be the first to have that happen where I'm going to be giving the memorial service and the Lord just say, Eric, turn around grab their hand and ask them to come forward. Really, Lord? Really? That's going to shock them all. But do we believe God can raise an individual from the dead? Why? Why do we believe it, and yet we've never personally experienced it? Because of the Bible. The Bible is only a revelation of who? God. And once you have a proper understanding of God through the special revelation that He has given through the Word of God, to know that uh, for Him to raise someone from the dead is, is that any hard task whatsoever? No. And this is what I want to encourage in 2019. That we would read the Bible, allowing the Bible to teach us the heart of God, revealing to us the character, the nature, and the ability of God, and therefore looking at the Word of God through that lens rather than the pragmatic lens of my own personal experience. If we can do that, guess what's going to happen? Our faith is going to go from zero to a hundred. Now you may say, well, that's doesn't seem logical. Well, wait a minute. How logical is it for you to determine truth based on your own personal experience that warrants about this much of data? How logical is that? No, I am comparing the data that is before me in the light of who God is and who He claims to be and all the things that God has done. And it is truthfully said that if I can get past verse 1 of Genesis, for in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I can get past the rest of the entire Bible. Because I place it in the reality of who God is. This individual chose the Word of God to be the philosophy for his life, governing his life going forward. Knowing that there would be millions of philosophies within this world that would try to deter him and distract him and get him off course, he chose the Word of God to keep him on course. For example, I went 
and I taught recently at a homeschooling co-op in the area, and we were talking about worldviews and philosophy and so forth. And I stated to them, can they imagine how many Google hits I got when I typed in the word God? Can anybody imagine how many hits I got just typing in God, capital G-O-D? 2,750,000,000. I went through every one of those. No. The point is, how do I look at that much data, that much information, and discern what is true and what is false? I need something to govern or to standard the exploration of that information to help me discern what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. We are inundated with information in our culture today, aren't we? We used to have to go to these places called libraries when we wanted information. Today we go to Google. Today we go to the internet. The problem is, is that individuals have not been taught how to discern and weed through the information that they're being um, exposed to. I'm all for information. I don't mind opposing views to my Christian faith. I'll discuss it out. Let's talk it through. Let's work the, the, the evidence to see where we really stand. I have no problem with that. But my problem is inundating people with information and not telling them how to sort through this information. This is why I got incredibly scared when I saw that one of the aspects of the American culture that was disappearing was that of critical thinking. Critical thinking would have been the apparatus in which an individual is to use to discern the information that's put before him or her. So now we're inundated with all this information. When it comes to God, 2,750,000,000. I told the class, I said, is that a reasonable number to handle? And they were all like, of course not. That's an astronomical number. And I said to them, what happens if I could reduce 2,750,000,000 to two? Would that be a more reasonable number to work with? And they said, yes. How do you do that? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Paul the Apostle showed us and was being inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing what he did, brilliantly anticipated what we were going to go through in our lives as Christians And he wrote this to the church there in Colossae in verse 8 of chapter 2. If you find it there with me. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental principles of of the word, a world, and not according to Christ. Watch yourself. Be careful. Look out. There are philosophies that will hold you hostage, uh, lead to liberation, but to captivity. There are philosophies in this world that will hinder your progress and your, uh, your growth in Christ due to the fact that they are rooted in human traditions and in the elemental principles of this world. When you come to philosophies, for example, there's all different types of philosophical ideas in the world today. But let's take the science of the study of the psyche of the individual. We call it psychology. Psychology is man's attempt to fix human spirit apart from God. That's really what its attempt is. Psyche means spirit in Greek. Now, psychology starts out with fundamental basics 
rudimentary, rudimentary, <laughs> rudimental principles that the philosophy is built upon. And one of those principles is that man is generally, or woman, generally good. And therefore, environment changes that and brings them into wickedness. Now, what does the Bible say about an individual? That all are good and warrant the kingdom of God? No. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. It says just the opposite. That we are not individually good from the conception, our birth, and so forth, and our growing up. We are generally wicked before God who is perfect and who is the standard in which we should compare our morals with. If a philosophy like psychology is based upon that particular principle, it's rooted in that, that man is generally good, will that come in conflict with biblical Christianity? Yes or no? Absolutely. And through this, we have seen an increase of individuals who see themselves as victims of their own personal wickedness rather than being convicted and guilty, leading them to repentance and crying out to God for salvation due to that sinful wickedness. And Paul says, watch out. Do not be taken captive by these philosophies. Now in this, he goes on to say in verse 9, for in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Meaning that all I need is in Christ. And through his word and his spirit, etc. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that is the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that he is basically now stating that every philosophy can be put into one or two categories. Either it is of the first category, therefore of the kingdom of God, or a philosophy, therefore of the kingdom of this world. Now the kingdom of God, the ruler over the kingdom of God is who? God. The ruler of the kingdom of this world is who? Who's come to steal, kill, and destroy. So does it make sense now from a biblical perspective that a philosophy of this world based upon human traditions and empty deceit is going to fulfill the mandate of the ruler who created it? Yes or no? Yes. Absolutely. And Paul says, do not allow yourself to be taken captive by these things. So the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. To help me see where I am and negotiate where I am going through a world inundated by information and philosophy. God's Word stands above it all. One wrote, he said very simply and eloquently, it is God's Word that provides certainty and in this sense security to the choices of the psalmist who finds himself at that moment in personal distress. Now that we have stated that there are two categories, the world and that of that which is of God, and I know I'm simplifying it and we could have further conversations about what has happened since the, the giving of the, the Word of God and how man has interpreted, how man has misapplied it and so forth. That's a discussion we can have at another time. But let us first have the discussion that there's two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And God is saying that through my word, my word is an illumination for those who are walking as an individual who is a subject of the kingdom of God. Now, many want to believe that the Bible works pragmatically in their life. A pragmatic illustration would be uh, this. 
Say you got, if you're, <laughs> this Christmas, this is appropriate, you bought your son or daughter the, the, the bicycle of their choice. And of course, the bicycle is in a box, right? Needing assembly. And now dad goes to assemble it, and there's a zillion different pieces. Or if you're a little bit older, you went and bought a piece of furniture at Ikea. Oh my goodness, can they make any more parts for a piece of furniture at Ikea? You know, this beautiful bed, it comes in a box this big, you know, you're just like, how does that work? And you lay out all the pieces of the bike or the bed before you, and you're like, whoa, oh my goodness, where do I start? And you know, if you're like me, you know, it's just like, I start jumping into the project and start putting things together only to realize that I didn't put this piece in first and now it doesn't fit. Now I got to take the whole thing apart and I'm crabby mad because of it. But they put a piece of paper in the box. It's called the instructions. And that instruction manual is one of the most pragmatic documents you can find in this earth. It is telling you to get for, how to get from point A to point B, step by step. And that you should go from a zillion parts to a bike. That you should go from a zillion parts to a bed. Many have been misled to believe that the Bible works in that fashion. And the reason we've been misled to think that the Bible works in this type of fashion is because we've been subjugated to topical teaching, one right after another, seven steps to a better marriage, 10 steps to be a better parent, 93 steps to understand teenagers, you know, and so forth. And therefore, it is put in a what? A step-by-step pragmatic manner. But do you know what happens So often in those type of teachings, Scripture is taken out of context. It is misunderstood, it is misapplied, and therefore doesn't have the result that it initially intended to have on the life of the believer. So Pastor Eric, if it's not pragmatic, then what is it? It's organic. You will find more agricultural terms throughout the New Testament than in any other place of the Bible. Talks about planting, watering, reaping. It talks about fruit of the Spirit. It's an organic process. It is something that should be looked at in an agricultural manner rather than in a pragmatic manner. Now, if you're a pragmatist and you plant a seed into the dirt because you've been told that seed is going to be a tomato plant, you go to bed and the next day there's no tomato plant, you might come to the conclusion that the seed has failed, hasn't it? But what haven't you given it? Time, some water, some light, letting it grow. Oh, I think the Bible talks about that too. Growing as a Christian. The Word of God, if approached in the manner in which it's meant to be approached, the reader would understand that as I am reading the Word of God, I am planting the Word of God in my heart and in my mind, and then the Holy Spirit comes and He waters, and then God starts changing me from the inside out through it. But many today object and say, well, you know, I tried to read the Bible, but it just wasn't relevant for me. And I want to go to a church that is relevant. Well, you know what? You're going to be the only one at that church because what's relevant to you may not be relevant to the person sitting next to you. Correct? However, though, when you understand that you are in a process, a growing process, an agricultural process. You are understanding that you may be learning and digesting and planting the Word of God for something that's going to happen in the near future. Right? If you know that by 
November, here in Chicago, the snow is flying. By October, the ground is freezing. And that you have to harvest your fruits and vegetables in September to have them stored for the winter months, are you going to plant in August? No. But have you noticed that often people, when they are in problems that they could have avoided if they would have educated themselves through the Word of God prior, once they fall into that pit, they then run to the Bible and say, now get me out of this pit. And the Bible can give them suggestions in, in how to do so, but they are suggestions that often say, now stop and let God take it from here. And they don't want to leave it there because, no, I don't want to stay in this place. I want to get out. So the Bible didn't work for me. However, though, if you talk to them and you discover that if they would have been reading the word of God, the word of God would have warned them and said, don't fall into the pit. Do you see what I'm saying? So when we go through the word of God here on Sunday mornings, Yes, often the Holy Spirit will remarkably meet us right where we're at. And the text will speak to something in our lives at that moment. But at other times, God is planting in us to reap later. He's planting the Word of God in us to do a work in us later. But at all times, He is working in us through the Word of God. As the writer stated concerning the psalmist, he said the psalmist, by determining that the word was a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path, it meant that the scriptures given to us today give us direction and guidance in all circumstance of life. If you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul states that the reception of the word of God in the hearts of the Thessalonians was something that he rejoiced over. He talks about this working of the word in the life of the individual. Verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians. And we also thank God consistently for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of man or men, meaning that it originated in men, but as it was really the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Highlight that verse. The Thessalonians realized that what Paul was communicating to them verbally was the Word of God. Undoubtedly quoting the Old Testament Scriptures, inspired in his own personal teaching as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and writing the words in which we have here in the book of 1 Thessalonians, they accepted the Word of God as the Word of God. If we are going to be fruitful in our Bible reading, we must understand that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible claims, like no other book, to be the actual breathed-out work of God for us. Some of your Bibles in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 will state all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or as ESV puts it, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is the same term that he used for the creation of all the world in which he spoke things into creation. It is also the same word as the Holy Spirit is the one who brought about this, uh, this inspiration upon the writers of the New and Old Testament. The word ruach is also found in there and the word breath or spirit. God breathed through these men. These men were led to write what God was leading them to write. Not in the form of simple dictation, but God moving through them to write what he would have them to write, allowing still for their own literary style and uh, a uh, capacity of their own personal education. Unique only to the Bible. The inspired word of God. If I believe that it is the inspired word of God, I will read it differently than if I simply believe it's a written book by man. 
but as I believe that it is inspired, Warren Worsby reminds us, he says, we must not think of inspiration the way the world thinks of it when it says Shakespeare was certainly an inspired writer. What we mean by biblical inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the Bible's writers which guarantee that what they wrote was accurate and trustworthy. Revelation means that the communicating of truth to man by God, inspiration has to do with the recording of that communication in a way that is dependable. Whatever the Bible says about itself, man, God, life, death, history, science, and every other subject, it is true. This does not mean that the, every statement is the Bible, I'm sorry, it does not mean that every statement in the Bible is true because it does record where people have lied. Because the Bible records the lies of men and of Satan, but it records it in a truthful manner. The Bible, if we will accept it as the God-breathed Word of God, we will read it differently than if we simply believe that it's a book written by man. Higher criticism has told us that we cannot trust the Bible as the authentic Word of God. The Bible has been subjected to many higher critics over the last two millennium since the conception of the New Testament. And higher critics will say, well, look, there are all these problems that allow us to see the inaccuracies and the flaws of the Bible. The problem is, is that when you start looking at what they consider an inaccuracy or a flaw, it's due to the fact that they are approaching it through the natural mind of man rather than the regenerated spirit of a follower in Jesus Christ. Paul made it clear that the natural man cannot receive that which is of the spirit but only one who has been born again can truly understand. But let me quantify this for you, put a little flesh to it. By reading the Bible, my dad would say, I come to the miracles and that just doesn't seem probable to me. It just doesn't seem scientifically possible to me. Well, that's a good question, dad. And if it was a natural occurrence, science would be able to explain it. But I don't rely on science to be my authority at that moment. I rely God to be my authority. And the, the case for God being able to do a miracle within the Bible is completely substantiated. It is not science that I am looking at to confirm the miracle. It is Christ who's performed the miracle and then says, now what will you do with it? My perspective is that, okay, well, you don't believe that science can allow for your miracle. Uh, my understanding of God doesn't allow me not to accept this miracle. Same perspective, I'm sorry, same evidence, two different perspectives. But how do you test this? How do you test the inspired word of God and God placed a proof test within it? He's given us prophecy. He said that I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens to demonstrate that I am above all that is occurring. The Bible tells us clearly that when God sees the world, he sees beginning, middle, and end all at the exact same time, and he's able to describe what is yet going to happen before it has happened. When the book of Daniel is challenged by higher critics... They cannot accept it because the accuracy of the predictions and the prophecies within it. Really? From man's perspective, I understand your unwillingness to accept this. But from my perspective, God sees everything past, present, and future. And if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Completely different mindset. But I believe it is the inspired word of God. Now, there's also fruit. Does the Word of God impact upon people's lives in changing their lives? And the answer is yes. Unlike any other religious document in the entire world. Why is that? Because no other religious document in the world, I don't care what it is, does not accompany itself with what the Bible accompanies itself with. And that is the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit working in the Word of God is working in you to bring you back into the image of Jesus Christ. Any other piece of literature would fall upon self. It would fall upon my own personal ability. But when I read the Word of God, and I see its challenges, and it opens my eyes to the, to the revelation of the wickedness of my own personal heart. And I say, Lord, I am incapable of getting past this. He goes, I will. I'll do it. You just surrender to me. You just confess unto me. I'll work into you. Changing you from the inside out to who he wants you to be. That's why everyone here at Calvary Chapel is a work in progress. None of us have arrived. None of us are perfect. None of us are better than any other of us who are here. So if you get a card from somebody in 219 saying, I've arrived, I am perfect and completely sanctified in Jesus Christ, run from that party. Do not even RSVP. Blow it off. Because they're, they're not telling you the truth. We are all works in progress. And that's why we give grace upon grace upon grace to each other. I'm going to fail you. You're going to fail me but because of our, the work that God is doing in us and because of the grace of God, the love of God, He keeps us together as a family, allowing for that work to take place in all of us. Believing it's the inspired Word of God, the writer therefore goes on in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or God, a man or woman of God, may be completely equipped for every good work. What you need is in the Word of God, if you allow it to have its effect upon you. Understanding that it is not necessarily a pragmatic document, something that you read to get to point A to point B, but something that you cultivate within your heart each and every day as you read the Word of God, as you uh, spend time with the Lord in prayer before and after you read, taking either a paragraph or a few sentences or a few verses at a time, but reading through a letter of the New Testament, reading through the Psalms, reading from Genesis to Revelation, seeing God within it all. As one wrote, he says this, the purpose of Bible study is not just to understand doctrines or be able to defend the faith, as important as these things are. The ultimate purpose is the equipping of the believers who read it. The Word of God is that equips God's people to do the work for God. The times are not getting, are going to get better for us, but we Christians can become better people, even in bad times. We must separate ourselves from that which is false and devote ourselves to that which is true and to continue our study of the Word of God, then God can equip us for the ministry that is service that He has for us in these difficult days and we will have the joy of seeing others come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul then went on to say that it is the Word working in you. And this is the most important portion of our, our, our time this morning, and we'll close with this. The Word of God is working in you. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you became a dueled nature. You have the old life, the flesh, and you have the new life, the spirit. And right now, they're warring against each other within us. The old nature, though it has been crucified with Christ, we often resurrect it, we bring it back into service, and we fall to its wills and its whims each and every day. But there's a new creation that's taking place within me. It is the dawning of the light that Christ brought into this world. It is the beginning of the subjection or the subjugating of the world to the kingdom of God. It's this new work that's taking place in me that's growing. And as the light grows, the darkness decreases. As the light grows, the darkness dissipates within me. But how do I grow in Christ? We used to have a very simple way of stating it years ago, and I wish we'd bring it back. We read the Word of God to feed the Spirit that is within us, that is growing. 
You know, all, many of us are looking at each other and saying, I don't know why I feel so weak and distraught and discouraged in my Christian life. It's because your spirit is anorexic. Start feeding it. Start taking it to the, the spiritual golden corral and let's go. Let's get the trays and fill them up. The Word of God feeds the spirit that is in you. The new work, the new, the new, the new you that's being uh, brought back into the image of Jesus Christ. It's the Word of God that as we plant it, and as the Spirit waters it, and God brings about the changes that is working in us. And the Thessalonians were willing to have that word work in them in that way. So before you dismiss it as, well, this passage that I'm reading isn't relevant to my personal life, it very well may be later on. You know, when I was a teenager, I had absolutely no need for Rogaine whatsoever. I had a full head of hair, a mane. You'll have to picture it, you know. Talk about imagination. You have to take that one on faith. Now it's a completely different story. But if you would have told me about the benefits of Rogaine when I was 19, 20 years old, I would have laughed at you. That's not really relevant to my... It's relevant now. I'm looking forward to the new body, the head of hair. I just would like to have bangs again. You know? I mean... It gets so cold so fast, you know. And then walking in the winter, I see people approaching me on the other side of the trail and they're like this. And they're like, like oh, I should have worn my sunglasses. I'm like, well, it's not that bright. And then they pass me. Oh, that's better. I want to reflect, but not in that way, you know. But so many of us come to the Bible in that exact same way. Well, it's not telling me exactly what I should do at this moment, and therefore it's no use to me whatsoever. No, it's preparing you for tomorrow. It's preparing you for the next day. Well, how does that help me now? Well, it helps you now because it'll equip you not to make the same mistake tomorrow again. Right? That's the way the Word of God works in us through the Holy Spirit. It produces fruit within us. And the fruit doesn't come full size immediately. Can you imagine you plant a watermelon patch and all the watermelons come out huge initially? And then you realize, oh, this is wrong. This is not meant to happen this way. Of course, it starts small and gets bigger over time. It grows agriculturally within you. That's the work that God is doing in you. Step by step, day by day. I've said this story so many times, but I'll close with it today because it's really appropriate for our discussion this morning. When I was a little kid, my first trip to Disney World, I was psychologically damaged for the rest of my entire life. It's supposed to be the happiest place on earth, people tell you, right? I thought it stunk, okay? I, I... I was like, this, this, forget it. And my grandpa picked us up at O'Hare Field to take us home. And he was all excited. So we went to his house first so we could have dinner with my grandparents. And then you could tell them all about the vacation. And he finally gets me, he goes, Eric, he goes, what did you finally think of going to Disneyland or Disney World? Uh, I said, it, it stunk. I hated it. He said, I, pff, Donald Duck was here, I'd in the mouth. <laughs> and he's like, what the heck happened? I said, Grandpa, every single ride I looked forward to, pff, I couldn't go on. The, duck, the duck's hand was here. You had to be so tall. And I'm under here. And I couldn't go. I went on the stinking teacups, Grandpa. I mean, it didn't do nothing for me. And my grandpa says, well, how high do you think it had to be? And I was giving my hand, so he asked my dad for more specifics. And my dad said, oh, about 48, you know, 50 inches high. And so my grandfather put this mark on the door of his home and how tall I had to be 
to go on those rides. And he says, when you get that tall, I'll make sure your parents take you back and you can go on those rides. Do you know how much that stunk? Every single weekend that we went there, I ran to that mark and I didn't go anywhere. In fact, a few weekends I thought I went down. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to experience these things. When my grandpa died, and we were moving my grandmother out of their large home into a home more suitable for her for her life, as I was carrying a box out, I saw the mark on the door. And do you know where it was? down here. He never gave me that trip to Disney World. But how often do we look at our relationship with God in the exact same way? Lord, I'm not growing. I'm not changing. I'm not going anywhere. And we get discouraged and we stop reading and we stop praying and we stop preparing our hearts, and we stop planting within our hearts for the Word of God to be watered and then the Word of God to be reaped within our hearts. We get discouraged, and then we cut off the one line of nutrients to our newfound faith in Christ, the Word of God. And then we stagnate. And then we are stunted in our personal growth. And we never reach Donald Duck's hand. But God has showed me, now that I've been a Christian 30 some years, that I have grown a lot. Still got a long way to go. But I've grown a lot. Don't cut off your source of nutrition. In 2019, I want you to make a commitment to me that you will begin, not a resolution, resolutions are meant to be broken a commitment before you and the Lord and asking God for help. Help me to read your word every day, Lord. Help me to start Genesis to Revelation wherever you'd have me to begin. Spending a little bit of time every day. It doesn't matter if it's in the morning. You know, some people feel like you have to have devotions in the morning. God's a morning person. If you get him in the afternoon, he's kind of grumpy. You know, he's got the hungries and, you know, and he gets angry and so forth. No, no. Whenever your day allows for it, take a little time to spend in prayer, the Word, and then pray at the end of it. Think of your devotional as an Oreo cookie. The first cookie, the fluff. I'm a double stuffer. Anybody else a double stuffer? When they go to triple stuff, we know heaven has arrived. And then the cookie at the end. Open your hearts before the Lord in prayer. Take the Word of God in. Close in prayer, give God some time, and meditate on the Word. Now, what do I mean by that? Am I talking about kneeling Indian style in the corner of your home? No. Meditating on the Word of God has a very technical meaning to it. It means to chew on it, stir on it each and every day. The word actually in Hebrew is from a cow chewing its cud. The cow eats the hay, chews up the hay, swallows it, regurgitates it, chews on it some more, swallows it again, and brings it forth again. That's what we should do with the Word of God. Chew on it. Let's sink in for a little bit. Bring it back to our minds. Chew on it some more. Bring it back into our hearts. Chew on it and so forth. And let it have its full permeation within our life. I hope that's encouraged you this morning. Because Paul writes, he says this to us. In closing, and I'll just read this and we'll pray. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdoms, the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which thankfulness, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, what a beautiful verse for this new year. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.